So this morning, uh, we've come to the last portion of the first half of our sermon series on 2 Corinthians. Uh, if you want to be uh, turning in your Bible, we'll be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, we're going to be taking several weeks off from this series, uh, but we'll pick back up in uh, our study of 2 Corinthians uh, in, toward the end of January. Um, we have made it halfway through the book. Um, and so I invite you to look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll read that text in just a few minutes. Now, one of the great struggles that people, in, that people have as they take a spiritual journey through this world is trying to understand why so many bad things happen to good people or why so many bad things happen in our world today. The prevailing thought is that if God is a God of love, then all of these bad things should not be happening. Now notice I said that's the prevailing thought in our culture today. I didn't say that was the truth. You see, because bad things are happening, people come to this conclusion of one of two things. They, they conclude that either because bad things happen, either God does not exist or God does not love. Both of these conclusions are wrong because they ignore the foundational teaching of God's word. So what foundational teaching am I referring to this morning? Well, I'm referring to the creation of man and the fall thereof. Now, this morning I've decided to uh, use a, um, almost like, uh, you know, the, the felt, you know, felt board, you know, teaching uh, materials. Because we're going back to elementary concepts, so let's, let's look at this in uh, somewhat of an elementary way. You see, when God created the world, he created the world in perfection. And when he got to the end of his creation, he created his ultimate creation, and that was he created man. And he created him in his own image. Or as the scripture says, let us create him in our image. Because we're looking at the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he created him and put him into this garden where everything was provided for him. But he realized that, that man needed something else. He was incomplete just by himself. And so God created woman from man, taking a part of man and creating a helpmeet for him. And so there were Adam and Eve in the garden. And in that garden, there were, was everything they could possibly want, but there were two very special trees. There was the tree of life, which provided them with eternal life, Sorry, I'm being distracted by my family laughing at my cartoons. I didn't draw these, by the way. There is a credit up on the screen, but I thought they were nice. So y'all just be nice to me, okay? Uh, but there were two trees, the tree of life and then also the tree of knowledge of good 
and evil. And God gave them one simple instruction. He said, do not eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You see, God had to give us the ability to obey him or to disobey him. Well, we all know the story. Um, they were tempted by the serpent, and then they made a choice to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they did that, they realized that they had made a mistake. Their eyes were open, and they realized that they had disobeyed God. And because of that disobedience, they were ashamed. They recognized the fact that they were no longer innocent, and they covered themselves uh, with leaves because of their nakedness. Well, as a result of this fall, there were several things that happened that were consequences to the fall. One of those things was that Adam uh, or man would uh, struggle to provide for his family from that point forward. There would be thorns that grew up among all of the produce that they would try to eat. They would struggle to get things to grow and so forth and so on. There would be difficulty in this world. Eve also had consequences of her sin. Not only was there a struggle, but there was great pain that would come in the childbearing process. So you see, when they made a choice to disobey God, there were consequences. That didn't change God's love. That didn't change God's you know, perfect creation in that he created it perfectly, but now there are consequences that don't just impact the person, but it impacted all of creation. One of the greatest consequences was that the, there was now a need to cover that sin. You see, Adam and Eve recognized the need to cover their sin, and so that's why they had made for themselves clothing out of uh, leaves and, and, you know, things that, that they could sew together. But God said, that's not enough. He said, because the, the penalty or the wages of sin is death. And so God slaughtered an animal and made clothing for them to cover their nakedness with the skins of the slaughtered animal. So why am I taking the time to, this morning to tell you a story that you've heard since you were in the toddler class in Sunday school? Well, the reason I'm taking this time is because the teaching of the creation and the fall of man is foundational for our understanding of how God operates in the world today. Without it, Without this teaching, we come to flawed conclusions as we look at what's happening in the world. You see, folks, evil exists in the world today because the first man and first woman made a choice to disobey God. The consequences of their disobedience brought about not only physical 
and spiritual death, but it also brought about pain and suffering and difficulties in this life. Again, these are the consequences of their actions. God allows these things to happen to cause us to look to him for help. When we're experiencing these pains, these sufferings, these difficult circumstances in our life, we are then looking for something to help us. God allows these consequences so we will turn to him. Without the consequences of sin, we would never look to him for salvation. We would never look to him in our need for reconciliation. We would just keep on sinning. If it were not for consequences, we would just keep on sinning because that's what we want to do. We all want to be like God. We want to determine our own destiny. Well, because of the gospel of reconciliation, which brings salvation, we can experience joy in the midst of this pain. We can experience joy in the midst of suffering and in the midst of difficulty. And that's what our text is teaching us today. The Apostle Paul wrote about some of these difficulties, but not in a negative way, not in a way of complaining about the difficulties he had gone through, but rather he wrote about these difficulties for our comfort and for our encouragement. And so this morning as we read this, we need to recognize the fact that he found joy in the midst of difficulties. And so we too can find joy in the middle of the circumstances we find ourselves in. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, the words of the text will also be on the screen, or of course you can uh, find those in the Bible app as well under our, our Temple Baptist event. We'll begin reading in chapter 7 verse 2, and we'll read through the end of this chapter. The Bible says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. 
so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But at just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affliction for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Now this morning as we look at this concept of finding joy in the midst of difficulties, our text, I believe, outlines for us two different major concepts of the difficulties that are faced, and then also it concludes with a couple of benefits that we want to look at this morning. And so the first of those difficulties is the difficulty of dealing with broken trust. The di difficulty of dealing with broken trust. You see, Paul here is asking the believers at the church in Corinth to trust him once again. Now, if you've been with us through this series, you know that uh, there were some false teachers who had come into Corinth and had spread rumors about Paul and the people there in Corinth believed these rumors because they did not know what was going on and why Paul had not kept his word as he had told them he was going to come and then did not show up. And so his, op uh, his opponents had spread these rumors and lies about him so that they had lost faith in Paul and lost faith in his companions. So what Paul says to him literally here in verse 2 is make room for us. The ESV adds that phrase in your hearts, but it adds that phrase for, so that we understand the concept behind this. He's saying make room for us. Make room in your hearts for us. Open up your hearts. Accept us. Literally what he's trying to say to them when he says make room for us is he's saying trust us once again. You see, Paul recognizes how difficult this request actually is. We know this because of the provisional statements that he makes in verses 3 and 4. Notice he says he wants them to know that he understands the way they feel. He understands why the, they feel the way that they do. 
And he does not condemn them. He says, I do not say this to condemn you. He doesn't condemn them for feeling that way. He's simply asking them to renew their trust in him. He also acknowledges that by asking them to make room in their hearts for them, that he is acting with great boldness. Notice what it says in verse 4. He is acting with great boldness toward you. But he has confidence, he says. He has confidence that they will extend trust to him once again. And because of this confidence, he is filled with comfort. And it says he is overflowing with joy. Even in the midst of broken trust, Paul is saying that he has joy that is overflowing in his heart because he knows that they are going to do the right thing. You know, folks, broken trust is difficult. You know, here in this situation, these are false accusations that have come from false teachers about Paul. And so there's, there's really no foundation for the trust to be broken. But the fact of the matter is, it was broken. Broken trust is difficult. And rebuilding that trust is even more difficult. In this situation, like I said, there were, they were false accusations. But I wonder this morning, what about those times... When the accusations aren't false. What about those times when there are absolutely valid reasons for that trust to be broken? How do you rebuild trust when someone has just destroyed that trust by their actions? What do we have to do to move from distrust to trusting again in a relationship. Well, there are, are four steps in this process of rebuilding trust. The first is to admit and repent. Number two, define and exhibit trustworthy actions. Number three, recognize and encourage trustworthy actions. And number four, trust, ultimately, trust in God. So, that's all fine and good, but let me try to illustrate this for us this morning. Put this into a, a story so that we can see how these four steps of this process of rebuilding trust might work. Let's take for an example a story that's all too true these days. A wife discovers that her husband is using pornography. She is understandably devastated. And as a result, she is now mistrusting of her husband. She can't trust him with any electronic device because of the, of the broken trust that he has caused. So how can this couple move forward in this situation? How can the couple move from this brokenness to a trusting relationship once again? 
Well, the first step in that process of rebuilding trust is that the husband must admit and repent of what he has done. Trust cannot even begin to be restored if the wife doesn't have a sense that her husband understands the pain that he has caused her. He has to admit that he caused this problem. He has to recognize her pain. He has to repent and say, I'm not going to do it ever again. Admitting and repenting is in and of itself a process and one that should not be short on sorrow and shame and tears and apologizing. All of those things should be a part of this step one that is three simple words, admit and repent, but it's not a simple process. So let's assume then that the husband does this. That the husband admits what he's done wrong. He has repented of it and now he's trying to rebuild that trust. He genuinely wants to repair the massive trust wounds that he has created. Well, the next step is that the couple must define or must work to define actions that demonstrate to the wife that he is now trustworthy. That demonstrate to the wife that the husband is, is making sacrifices for her benefits, especially in the area of technology usage. For instance, maybe the husband needs to make sure that the wife has complete access to his devices, whether that's a mobile phone, uh, a laptop computer, a tablet, whatever. Make sure that the wife has complete access, knows all passwords. But it's got to be more than that. The wife doesn't want to be the policeman of the husband. What more can he do to demonstrate trustworthy actions? Well, he could also um, put software on his cell phone. Put software on his computer that tracks what he's doing. To make sure that he's not looking at things he's not supposed to look at. Another thing that is vital in this situation is that he needs accountability. He needs somebody that will check up on him on a regular basis. Somebody that the wife can go to and say, how's he doing? He needs that accountability. The husband and wife must work together to define what those trustworthy actions are going to be. And, and how will that look in their marriage? I want to pause here for a moment because I want, I want to talk to the guys in this situation. There are lots of different situations uh, that can cause broken trust in a relationship, whether that be a marital relationship, a sibling relationship, a, a friend relationship, coworker relationship, there are lots of things that can cause broken trust. But in this particular example, what I've just described that the husband needs to do in order to, to exhibit trustworthy behavior, to be honest with you, that might hurt 
the husband's dignity. But folks, hurting a man's dignity is maybe what is necessary to help the wife to begin to rebuild that trust. Humility. Humbling yourself and saying, I messed up. And so now I want to move forward, recognizing that in some ways, let's just admit it, in some ways I'm going to have to be treated like a child. And no man likes to be treated like a child. Right? But in order to rebuild that trust, that may be necessary. Both husband and wife must define what those behaviors look like in the aftermath of the broken trust. Now at the same time, the wife needs to recognize the steps her husband is taking, which is step number three. Recognize trustworthy actions and encourage those trustworthy actions. She should openly appreciate and encourage her husband. If she takes the husband's steps of sacrifice for granted, then mistrust and resentment will begin to grow within the husband. The probability of trust being rebuilt is so much higher if one partner intentionally recognizes the efforts of the other. So you define the behavior, start exhibiting the behavior, and then the partner then recognizes it and encourages it. And that will build that trust. Trust increases when both people are willing to push themselves. While one partner shows that they're willing to take steps to actively rebuild the trust, the other partner must also show that they are willing to entrust themselves to that partner once again. And folks, that might be the most difficult part of this process. Entrusting yourself to one who has burned you. Who has broken that trust. You said they don't deserve it. And you know what? They don't. But how can we begin to do that? How can we begin to entrust ourselves to others? I believe that ultimately it starts with us trusting God. God loves you. So much. More than I will ever love you. More than your spouse will ever love you. And if you can imagine it, God loves you more than you love your children. You are his child. And he wants you to learn to trust by trusting him. And as you learn to trust him and trust him with your heart, then you're able to give your heart to others as well you know we're talking about a husband and a wife relationship but this is true in all sorts of situations I think of my my vocation my, my calling of being in the ministry and many of you 
here today, you are your widows of preachers or your retired pastors and or, or maybe your preacher's kids, and God bless you if you are. You know, but all of these different relationships, if you've been in ministry and vocational ministry in that way, you know that there are times when you get burned. And you just don't ever want to put your heart out there again. The only way to start that process is by learning to trust in the one who is faithful. And that is God. Trust him. And he will teach you to trust others also. You may be dealing with an issue of broken trust in your life. And I want to encourage you. This is not something that you can listen to five to ten minutes of a sermon and fix in your life. If you are dealing with this kind of issue in your life and you want help, please come find me and talk to me. And let's set up a plan of action to address these issues in your life if you're struggling with broken trust. It is truly a difficulty, no doubt. And that's what Paul was dealing with here, was an issue of broken trust. But the second difficulty that he's dealing with that begins in verse 5, and that is he was dealing with inner and external turmoil. He was dealing with turmoil in his life. In verse 5, Paul describes the turmoil that he experienced in Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is the province just north of the province of Achaia, where the city of Corinth was located. And the turmoil was caused by physical, mental, and emotional hardships. Now, if you think back to the book of Acts and you think about some of the things that took place in the province of Macedonia... Acts chapter 16 and 17 chronicle a lot of those things that took place in the city of Philippi of Macedonia, as well as the city of Thessalonica in Macedonia. You see, in Philippi, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods, and then they were imprisoned for causing an uproar in the city of Philippi. Do you remember what the, their crime was? What caused the uproar there in the city of Philippi? Well, there was this fortune teller that was following them around day after day after day and kept saying in their presence, these men are the servants of the Lord Most High. And, and it's kind of funny uh, because you see Paul's personality come out in this because here are these, here's this young lady that, that keeps crying out, they are the servants of, the, of God Most High. And finally, he just got so annoyed with this woman, he cast out the demon that was living inside her. When he did that, he took away her ability to be a fortune teller. You see, that's the way uh, she was able to do that because of a demon that was possessing her. And she once she was exercised of this demon, 
Then what happened next was she could no longer make money for the people that she was telling fortunes for. And so the men, when their wallets were affected, became outraged and threw the city into an uproar. So that's what happened in Philippi. They were thrown into prison, beaten in that process. And then you remember the story about how God opened the prison doors and they walked out and all of that. That's in Acts 16. And the Philippian jailer was then uh, saved because he saw their witness. And just, you know, as a side note, when we're thinking about joy in the midst of difficulties, what was Paul, what were Paul and Silas doing at midnight in that prison? They were singing. They were joyful. They were finding joy in the midst of their difficulties. Well, if you go on into the next chapter, uh, when they get to Thessalonica, Macedonia, uh, when the Jews would not listen to their teaching, Paul and Silas took their message then to the Gentiles. The funny thing is, is they wouldn't listen to them, but when they took the message to the Gentiles, they became jealous. So jealous that they formed a mob that set the city into an uproar and they attacked the house where Paul was staying, the house of Jason. And, and you know, pulled Jason out and was beating him and saying, where's Paul? Well, in the meantime... The believers there in Thessalonica had taken Paul and Silas and Paul had escaped under the cover of darkness to the next city over to the city of Berea. And so he went to Berea and he shared the gospel once again with the Jews. But as scripture tells us, the, the Bereans were more noble because they sought the scriptures daily to see if Paul was telling the truth. Well, when the mob from Thessalonica heard that Paul had gone on to Berea, they followed him there and caused more problems yet again. My question to you is this. Have you ever dealt with anything like these things that we're describing here? I mean, I, I've, I've lived... An, interesting life. I've had a lot of events that have happened in my life, but I'll be honest, I've not dealt with anything quite as extreme as what Paul is dealing with here. Have you ever been beaten with rods? Have you ever been wrongfully imprisoned? Have you ever been run out of town? Have mobs ever chased you down to the next town? I remember a time back in 2003 uh, when we were in the, in the Philippines serving as missionaries that there was, there was a mob uh, hunting me. <laughs> it, happened, it took place about three and a half, four weeks where we couldn't leave our house. Um, I thought that was the worst thing in the world. You know what? I never saw those people. <laughs> I, just, I just stayed at home. You know, there, it really wasn't any big deal. I was just told, don't go out because they're looking for you. And so I didn't. And that's all there was to it. I wasn't beaten. I wasn't thrown in prison. But you know what? That scarred me. 
You know, the, this, this idea of somebody's hunting me down because of something that they thought I had done, which I was not guilty of. It scarred me. What kind of emotional and mental hardships or difficulties was Paul going through as a result of some of these things that had happened in Macedonia? He said in verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. You know, I think that's kind of maybe the understatement of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to minimize the physical and emotional issues that you might be dealing with today, but take a moment and consider all that Paul was going through. Just take a moment and think about it. And now take another moment and consider his response. Verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. This morning, as we were singing, Pastor David chose the song, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. The verse of that song says, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering, in the sorrow, When my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle, and it seems the night has won. Deeper still then goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow, O my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance. See his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind, and life secure. And the calm will be the better for the storms that we endured. Christ, the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true, we will hold fast to the anchor. It will never be removed.
I don't know what you're dealing with today, folks. But I know that the God who comforted Paul so many years ago is still in the business of bringing comfort to those who are discouraged. He's still in the business of bringing peace to those who are anxious. He brings rest for those who are weary. He gives joy to those who are mourning. And he enables us to trust for those who have been burned by someone that they care about. That is our God. And this is why Paul is able to rejoice in the midst of these difficult difficult circumstances well let's move forward and look at some benefits uh, of of these difficulties that we face in life the third thing that we want to look at this morning is the benefits of godly grief what is godly grief well i think godly grief is the deep sorrow that one experiences when confronted with the reality of his or her disobedience to God. You know, as verse 10 says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief is the emotion that we experience that causes us to repent, that gives us salvation through Jesus Christ. Do you remember the letter that Paul had written, the harsh letter that we've talked about several times, that letter that was lost between the books of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, where Paul had to address some issues, and so he, he wrote some very difficult things to the people of Corinth. It hurt Paul to write that letter. But it also hurt them to read the letter and be confronted by their sinfulness. Much like a parent who does not want to discipline their child, but knows that they have to do it. This disciplinary letter from Paul was painful for them to read and painful for him to write. Let's be honest. No one enjoys being confronted about the sin that's in their lives, right? I mean, I don't, I don't enjoy it. I know that there have been some instances in my life where I had to be confronted for my sin that not only was it painful, it was embarrassing, humiliating. No one enjoys it. But godly grief leads to repentance, which brings salvation, which brings so much more as we find here in our text. If you look at verse 11 here in our text, we, we see here what godly grief also produces. Beyond repentance unto salvation, it says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent of this matter. What's Paul trying to say here? 
He said the godly grief that they experienced when they received that letter that confronted them with their sins, when they received that letter, they were earnest to make amends. They received it and they had that godly grief which caused them to be earnest to make amends. They were eager to clear themselves. There was righteous indignation against Paul's accusers, those that had spread those false rumors. They were, they were angry that they had believed them. They were alarmed at their own passivity and the harmful effects of listening to these false teachers. They had longing and concern for Paul and they were ready to see justice accomplished. That's what that list of things is there in verse 11. In all of this, they, they were in all of this, they proved that they were innocent by virtue of their repentance. They had sinned, not so much by doing the wrong thing, but by failing to do the right thing. Did you hear that? They sinned not because they did the wrong thing, but they failed to do the right thing. Are you telling me, preacher, that it's a sin to know what's right and not to do it? James chapter 4 verse 17 tells us whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin. God's goal in allowing us to experience the consequences of our sin. God's goal in allowing all these difficulties to come into our lives is so that we might see our iniquity as God sees it and earnestly repent with a godly grief. So I wonder today, what difficulties are you currently experiencing in your life? What things are happening in your life that are difficult? Is it possible that this is God's discipline trying to reveal a sin issue? In your life? Is it possible that he's allowing this difficulty to take place so that you will turn to him and recognize your own sinfulness? Take a moment, if you would, right now. Take a moment and ask God to show you the areas of your life where sin exists. Notice I said areas. In James 4, the verse before what I just read, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not looking at it, but it says, you know, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. <laughs> or maybe that's in 1 John 1, which I'm about to read. It's one of those two. Folks, if you'll ask God to show you the sin in your lives, he will. But if you sit there and say, I don't want to know, I don't want to repent, then you know what? You'll just continue to live in your sin. First John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Folks, God wants you to see your sinfulness so that you can be grieved by your sinfulness that leads to repenting of that sinfulness so that he can cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the benefit of godly grief. The last thing I want us to look at this morning is the benefits of godly companionship or the benefits of godly companions. You see, Paul concludes this section by comment, uh, sorry, Paul concludes this section by commending the Corinthians uh, for their response to his harsh letter. Uh, and he also commends them for the way that they treated Titus when he carried the letter to them and read the letter to him. You see, Titus was a young protege of Paul. Can you imagine the, having the letter, the harsh letter, as Paul calls it? And we have a lot of letters he doesn't call harsh that feel pretty harsh, you know? But he calls this his harsh letter. Can you imagine being the one that has to take that to them? I mean, you've all heard the, the comment, don't shoot the messenger, right? Why do they say that? Because, you know, carrying bad news is a dangerous job. So here was Titus serving as a courier for Paul's harsh letter. I can imagine that he, this wasn't something he was enjoying or looking forward to. He had no idea how the Corinthian believers were going to respond when he read that letter. But their positive response to Paul's discipline built a strong bond between Titus and the believers there in Corinth. I wonder though, what if Paul had never written that harsh letter? What if Paul had never confronted them about their sin? Or what if Titus had not been willing to carry the letter to them? Folks, here's the point, and I'm going to get into it quickly because it's late. The point is simply this. We need Pauls in our life that will confront us for our sin. We need Tituses in our life that will carry the message of God's word to us to point out our sin. We need Pauls and Tituses to help keep us in line with God's will and God's plan for our lives. Last week, Pastor David, when he preached, uh, challenged us to pursue holiness. He said this, he said, holiness is the process of becoming less like my sin and more like my savior. I love that. Holiness is the process of becoming less like my sin and more like my savior. I would posit that this is an impossible task to accomplish in solitude. Did you hear me? Do you understand what I'm saying? 
It is impossible to become the person that God wants you to be without other believers surrounding you. That's the way God made us to be. It's the way that God created this process to be. Yes, it is through the power of the Holy Spirit of God at work in your life that you will begin to gain victory over the power of sin. But God chooses to work in people through other people submitting to his will. That's why so many times in the book of Proverbs it talks about uh, godly counsel. We need each other. So I wonder this morning, who has God put into your life that, you, that can speak into your life for his sake? Who exists in your life that can be the voice of God to you? Or maybe who, in whose life do you need to speak? God is allowing difficult things in your life to point you to him. So I ask you this morning, what is he trying to say through the things that you're currently dealing with? What's he saying to you? He wants you to experience godly grief that will lead to repentance. And so my question to you this morning is, of what do you need to repent? And finally, he will use other godly influences to help you to help conform you into the image of his son who will that person be or who will those people be that speak in to your life let's pray father we thank you for our time in your word today and father i thank you for the incredible the incredible demonstration of rebuilding trust that we have here in 2 Corinthians. And so, Father, now as we uh, consider our, this time, I just pray, God, that if there are those here today that have broken trust or are dealing with uh, broken uh, pieces of their life, Lord, that they would look to you as the one who is faithful and learn to trust, learn to repent, and learn to depend upon not just you, but others also. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.